Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the <laughs> National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. <laughs> if you're joining us... No, or... I'll do it. I'll yeah. redo it. Mm-hmm. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Gaze at the National Parks is the podcast that explores the trails of America's national parks. One hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time. In between our full-length episodes, which explore these trails, we have trail mix episodes, which cover a variety of topics mostly related to the parks and the environment. Often, these trail mix episodes explore topics we didn't have time to cover in depth in a full-length episode. In this trail mix, we will be discussing the gray wolf at Yellowstone, their eradication, recovery, political controversy, and ecological benefits. So what do you know about gray wolves? Or gray wolves, I guess, specifically in Yellowstone? You know, I don't know much. I know that they are an animal that was in Yellowstone at one point, and then they weren't. And now they are there again. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> succinct history of the gray wolf. And yes. uh, that they are wolves. And <laughs> they, they are wolves. are gray. <laughs> they are gray. Wow. I know they you are sacred it. animals to indigenous yeah. people of Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. I mean, of the land also called Yellowstone. I also know that wolves should not be pets. No. No, no, no. 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 Just like other wild animals right. shouldn't be pets. Right. Squirrels, raccoons, what yeah. have you. Mm-hmm. People have raccoons as I know. pets, though. And I'm, like, shocked. Yeah. I'm like, honey, no, no, no. Those are, like, <laughs> the, they live in a dumpster for right. a reason. I've you know? seen raccoons with cats before as, like, friends. It's, I've seen a lot of, like, gifs of raccoons, like, wanting to cuddle other animals, mm-hmm. which I think is cute. But I'm also like, this is, like, a... Pro- <laughs> Something just turned over there on that side of the room. It did. <laughs> it was someone, both of us. Some, something a ghost. Was, a ghost was mad about 
are hating on raccoons. Right. Well, I mean, pets. we weren't hating on raccoons. Yeah. I mean, we're not hating on raccoons. Just <laughs> the idea of raccoons as pets. Not mm-hmm. They are not domesticated animals. No, we should no. not be. <laughs> no. We should not be bringing them inside and like cuddling with them. Just like wolves. Don't bring them inside. Just like wolves. <laughs> and don't cuddle them. No. Because it will not end well for you. No. No. While today, the gray wolf population of Yellowstone National Park is thriving, 25 years ago, that was anything but the case, as not only in Yellowstone, but most of the United States, the gray wolf was absent. Lots of decisions led to the eventual eradication of the gray wolf from the United States, and many more decisions on a much grander scale led to its reintroduction and recovery. But before we dive into any of this, let's learn about the gray wolf, or Canis lupus, if you will. Wolves are highly social animals who live in packs. The gray wolves of Yellowstone typically have packs of around 10 in number. However, depending on the time of the year and location, this can stretch much higher, as high as 30 in some cases. Wolves have a hierarchy to their pack At the top, an alpha male and an alpha female. You occupy both of those roles. (laughs) These are typically the only wolves in a pack that breed, producing one litter per pack per year of about four to six pups. A breeding wolf pair will typically mate for life until one member of the pair dies. If both alphas of a pack die, then another wolf or wolves will usually replace them. A non-breeding wolf can attain breeding status by working its way up through the hierarchy of a pack or through a process known as dispersing, in which a wolf will leave a pack to find a mate, join a new pack, or start a pack of their own. Typically, dispersers leave in the autumn and winter season, prior to the breeding season in February. I truly don't know if we're talking about just like gays in New York or (laughs) (laughs) wolves. Because I know a lot of dispersers. (laughs) Dispersers cover great distances to find or create a new pack and must be careful once leaving the safety of their original pack from other wolves and from humans. Wolf pups are born sometime in the spring, from March to May, and are born blind and deaf. By three weeks old, they have gained their sight and hearing, and by six weeks old, they have been weaned off their mother's milk and onto meat, which is brought back to the den for them. By midsummer, these pups leave the den with their mother, and by September, at almost full-grown size, They follow the adults. Wolves can live up to 13 years in the wild and can range in size depending on both their sex and the area within the wolf range where they are found. The average male wolf is about five to six and a half feet tail to nose, weighing about 70 to 115 pounds, while the average female is about four and a half to six feet tail to nose, weighing between 60 and 100 pounds. When trying to distinguish between a wolf and a coyote, a main difference is their size. Wolves also tend to have rounder, shorter ears, and a large blocky muzzle, and either hold their tail straight out or down, while a coyote's ears are pointed and long, their muzzle pointed and petite, and their tail is typically held below their back line. While wolves are comfortable in almost any area, from the desert to the prairie to the wetlands to the mountains, one thing that is important for habitat to be hospitable to wolves is the population of wild prey. And while urban areas were not originally believed to be a supportive habitat to wolves, as long as the prey exists, the only factor in a more urban environment that is important 
is the tolerance of humans to allow their existence. This brings us to an important point. What happened to all the wolves? Do you want to take a guess, Dusty, as to what possibly in a nation full of natural splendor and a population of indigenous people prior to the arrival of white settlers could have possibly given the way to the decimation of the wolf population? Okay, so truly my guess, knowing, you know, we just talked about buffalo, mm-hmm. is that the white settlers got rid of the wolves. Either they, like, killed them and, like, I mean, I'm guessing here, maybe they killed them and sold their fur or, you know, something like that. But my guess is that they decimated them in order to also decimate the indigenous communities. Ding, 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 are responsible. The ethos of this new nation, which is pushed right up against our current era, claim everything you can, and if there is something or someone living there that you don't like, eradicate it. Whether it's through genocide or relocation, get rid of it. What a plan. Thanks so much, forefathers. We really have made it after all. Okay, dripping sarcasm aside, Mike is exactly right. Colonialism and manifest destiny absolutely eviscerated the wolf population of the United States along with, you know, indigenous people and also buffalo. Gray wolves used to exist coast to coast, with the exception of some areas in the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast, but today are found in fewer than seven states in total. While the range of the gray wolf extends through the entirety of Canada, before the eventual reintroduction to the Yellowstone region, only a small corner of the United States in the heavy woodlands of Minnesota supported the U.S. population of gray wolf. So what exactly happened to the gray wolf? Well, with the westward movement of people that came after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, farming and livestock moved with them. In order to feed the growing nation, agriculture took center stage, and along with it came the destruction of forests, prairies, and grasslands. This destruction had a ripple effect into the ecosystem, and the animals which the gray wolf once preyed on became more and more scarce. This lack of wildlife, and more importantly to the gray wolf, prey, meant that their next best meal was livestock. This led to predator control programs, which helped to eradicate the wolf, and in some cases, depending on the area, other species like bear and cougars as well. Remember that although wolves are more predatory, these animals, like the buffalo, were hunted to the point of near extinction. While buffalo were valuable as a commodity through their pelt and their meat, wolves were viewed more as a nuisance in plans to expand westward. In fact, in some ways, gray wolf extermination is tied to the eradication of the buffalo, as their carcasses would be used as bait and laced with strychnine in an effort to poison the wolves that would feed on them. When this method of poisoning was in practice, hunters could kill around 1,000 wolves a winter this way. In order to protect livestock and ensure a West which was tamed, hunters murdered 80,000 gray wolves between 1883 and 1918. When the federal government stepped in in 1915, the decline of the gray wolf population in the U.S. was already so high that by 1930, most gray wolves had been entirely eliminated from the U.S. Yeah, let that sink in. And let's think about how this is incredibly comparable to what we just talked about yeah with, with, buffalo. The bu- with the buffalo those are some deeply sad numbers mm-hmm. like the buffalo the gray wolf was a sacred animal to the native people of the rocky mountain region and the plains revered for their hunting skill and often regarded as a guide to the spirit world 
The identity of the native people often overlapped that of the wolf and the attributes of the wolf in regards to its pack and its ability to survive. Like the buffalo, the gray wolf, an animal important to the indigenous people of these spaces, and a symbol of the West and how wild it was, was expendable for the progress of manifest destiny. But white settlers didn't stop with just wolves and buffalo or with the relocation of thousands of indigenous people. They worked to reshape the West through the extermination of many creatures, of which made ranching and farming more difficult. And this is where there were serious implications on the biodiversity and ecosystem of the Yellowstone region and the West in general, and why so much conservation and reintroduction was done after the fact. Part of this also falls to a failure to understand the implications the displacement and eradication of an entire species of animals would have on a region. However, time, and not much of it, made this fact all the clearer. The eradication of the gray wolf from Yellowstone in the 1930s saw an ecosystem that changed dramatically. The major shift came in the fact that the park had lost its largest apex predator, which kept in check the elk population. The elk population increased in size in the 1930s, and after management techniques which correlated with a dramatic drop in the population, they rebounded and exploded again starting in the late 1960s. Elk caused a host of issues that had been kept in check by the gray wolf, keeping their population manageable. Everything from erosion of the riverbanks and rivers through elk traffic to the decimation of aspen trees and the grazing in and foraging off of other plants that acted not only as food but shelter for other animals had wider-reaching implications. Without wolves, coyotes, who survived within the park, moved to the top of the food chain. Lack of vegetation to hide in and feed on meant that rodents and small game like rabbits became more vulnerable to coyotes which left a hole for raptors and other birds of prey. Insects and songbirds were also affected by the disruption of the ecosystem. And while things didn't necessarily fall apart, they were hardly working as smoothly as they were prior to the schism in the biodiversity of the park. I feel like this sort of disruption of the ecosystem is sort of paralleling a lot of what we're seeing today in yeah. the global ecosystem as right. a whole. The ecosystem was working. Right. And then humans came in and, yeah. We did what RuPaul never wants us to do. No, doesn't want us to do Mm -hmm. it, but we did. But we did. We did. And so... We took our wig off during the (laughs) listening. We have an ecosystem that is out of control at this point, and not in a way that we're hoping for it to be out of control. No. Thriving and surviving. It is striving to survive and striving to manage the offset of so many different things, which is becoming harder and harder. This was such an example of how like all of these animals coexisted together. Mm -hmm. And without that interruption, things were balanced. Like Mm -hmm. things weren't ever out of hand. Right. Really, what does out of hand even mean when it comes to nature? Like the only reason things are out of hand is, I guess, when humans interfere or humans decide that something's out of hand. Right. Nature yeah. will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And it has for and it millennia. Has. And we had people who let nature lead the way for thousands of years right. and were the stewards of helping nature lead the way until we, we took that away from took them. Took that away from them. Yep. Good times, America. So what changed and brought the gray wolf back to the region? Well... 
What got the ball rolling was actually the Endangered Species Act, signed into legislation in 1973. While there were still a few packs of gray wolves in Minnesota, the last wolves in the Yellowstone region were killed in the 1930s. During the 70s, gray wolves had begun to reintroduce themselves to the Rocky Mountain region in Montana, eventually drifting even further south to the Yellowstone region. Despite this natural reintroduction, it was believed that the chances of recovery on the part of the wolves alone would be extremely low. However, because of the 1982 amendments to the Endangered Species Act, quote, experimental populations, end quote, of either an endangered or threatened species could be reintroduced to their historic range provided there was management in place which included provisions for keeping these animals within their historic range and removing any animals that were problematic. And this is what set the legal groundwork for the reintroduction of the gray wolf in this region, despite the political minefield, uphill public opinion battle, and rebranding efforts of the gray wolf from villainous, a long-held belief by those in the West, to helpful and important part of the ecosystem, a proven fact. The Northern Rocky Mountain Wolf Recovery Plan from 1987 is visible on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's website. The plan outlines a history of the wolf in the region as well as objectives for rehabilitation, which include, quote, to remove the Rocky Mountain wolf from the endangered and threatened species list by securing and maintaining a minimum of 10 breeding pairs in each of three recovery areas for a minimum of three successive years. To reclassify the northern Rocky Mountain wolf to threatened status over its entire range by securing and maintaining a minimum of 10 breeding pairs in each of the two recovery areas for a minimum of three successive years. And to reclassify the northern Rocky Mountain wolf to threatened status in an individual area by securing and maintaining a minimum of 10 breeding pairs in the recovery area for a minimum of three successive years, end quote. While these seem like similar goals, they actually are working toward a greater wolf population over time through more specific localized areas as opposed to just the broad range. And these are literally the broadest strokes of the plan, which include finer bullet points of securing and promoting establishment of colonizing wolves in the recovery area, promoting wolf conservation in the greater Yellowstone area, evaluating and selecting appropriate transplant methods, developing criteria for determining problem wolves, monitoring timber harvests and fire management, and periodically reviewing wolf management zones and revising as necessary. Those are but a few of the 52 points that were part of this plan. So nothing was done lightly or without great concern for the wolves and the communities that would be nearest to the areas of reintroduction. That being said, it didn't stop the controversy surrounding this move. Much of this came in resistance based on long-standing prejudices to wolves and the threats they imposed, mostly to farmers and ranchers through livestock loss, but also to hunters who feared a loss of game to hunt. While the reintroduction process was in its infancy, compromises were needed in order to secure enough support so that the plan could go forward. The compromises mostly fell under a management category and how wolves would be dealt with in and out of the park and how ranchers and farmers might be compensated for loss of livestock. From quiet exploration of wolf reintroduction in 1975 to full-blown reports, studies, and debates, 20 years passed before the first 14 wolves were transplanted from the Canadian Rockies in Alberta, Canada to Yellowstone National Park in 1995. From these humble beginnings to today, there are at least over 100 wolves within the park boundaries, while in the greater Yellowstone area, there are several hundred. And what has this meant for Yellowstone National Park? 
Well, for one thing, the ecosystem has rebalanced itself. As the biggest predator of elk within the park, these herds, which had grown exponentially, had finally come back under natural control. Being culled by natural predators thinned the herd, allowing the strong to survive and reproduce. Having a predator like wolves back in the park also meant that areas that once were havens for elk, like gorges, valleys, and riverbeds, could no longer support them for fear of attack. This allowed these areas to regrow and regenerate. When sources of food and shelter that were absent returned, it also allowed animals that were absent to the park to return as well. Their reintroduction also changed the course and cleanliness of streams and rivers, as erosion was less of an issue, and in some ways, the reintroduction of the gray wolf transformed the park to a distant past, the way it was before their absence. While the balance of Yellowstone's ecosystem has been restored, there are plenty of areas within the United States and worldwide where, through human interruption, things have swung out of balance. The work of the gray wolves in returning to their natural and historic range is proof that the biodiversity of an ecosystem is important, and with one piece amiss, the entire system can run amok or, in the worst-case scenarios, fail completely. The sources for today's episode come from the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Yellowstone Forever, the official nonprofit partner of Yellowstone National Park. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard, and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at Gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, Gaze at the National Parks.com. That's Gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze Shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Ocean County, New Jersey. Thank you.